0: Have you ever wondered what it takes to build a successful business in the Australian property industry? Well, you've come to the right place. Welcome to Business and Property Development, a monthly podcast in which industry leaders share their insights and experience with host Harry Karadimas.
1: Hello and welcome to the show. This month, I've got a truly fantastic conversation to share with you. A little while back, I was having lunch with a friend and colleague who introduced me to Luke Rust, my guest for this episode. Luke is an entrepreneur and the founder of an amazing tech startup called Outbound, which installs a range of electric vehicle types within properties that are available on demand for its users. It just so happened that around this time, I was also reading a fascinating book called Speed and Scale, written by John Doerr, the American venture capitalist. The electrification of transport was the first key objective he wrote about that can help us mitigate our approach towards irreversible climate change. Naturally, I saw this as a prime opportunity to learn more and now share the value that Outbound has, not just on the properties that install this tech, but the value to the wider community and the environment. Luke is an incredibly talented individual on many levels, and given he is of my vintage, it's also very humbling to speak with someone, making a big impact to both the natural and built environments we inhabit. For me, climate change is pretty real, so I'll take any opportunity to become more knowledgeable and, in whatever way I can, to support and share the great work of people who aim to leave our world in a better place. So, without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Luke Rust. Luke, welcome to the podcast. It's fantastic to have you with me today. Thank you for having me, Harry. We've got a a couple of key themes in this conversation that I'm really excited to be unpacking today. We've got your, your entrepreneurial journey and business journey running and establishing Outbound. And we've also got the overarching issue of climate change and how a company like Outbound is helping to mitigate some of those impacts and also make a positive contribution to the property assets and property development projects that have your tech deployed within them. I think we've got a bit to, <laughs> a bit to get through today. <laughs> Wide range of topics. But that
0: makes it more fun, right? <laughs> that's it,
1: that's it. But before we get into those two themes, I wanted to ask you a couple of questions just so that we can paint a picture of you for our audience. So if you can tell me where were you born and where did you grow up?
0: Born in a little, little town called Northampton in the UK, right in the middle of England. Great little upbringing, wonderful family. My dad was a land surveyor and ran a land surveying company so quite early on I had a good understanding of how subground infrastructure works and I was lifting manholes from sort of 14 years old and (laughs) uh, pushing sewerage down pipes and that sort of stuff so I had an interesting upbringing in that sort of space. Local schools up until about 13 and then got picked up playing rugby as a 13-year-old and shipped off to a a private school for the the sort of latter years at Stowe School. Quite a prestigious school. I was very, very lucky to end up going there. In some ways, probably didn't maximise use of time at that school. You know, it really was a prestigious place to be. Played rugby for my five years and kind of moved out into the big, wide world.
1: Did you have any idea what you wanted to do at that point in time?
0: No, I had some understanding around the environment, actually. Quite early on, I was interested in that space. I still don't think schools really key you up for understanding what career you want to do. The the goal of school seemed to be which university to go to, you know, they were pushing you into Cambridge, Oxford, Imperial, wherever, rather than which career you're heading to. So I ended up taking a year out and working in a local school for a year whilst I was sort of figuring it out. And then ended up kind of chasing my, sort of my favorite subject at school, which was geography. Went and started a degree in that and sort of pulled out after a year because I really didn't know where it was taking me.
1: And so where did you end up with the tertiary side of things? Convinced the family that actually
0: this wasn't what I wanted to do and I'm gonna drop out and we're gonna go and find something else. Else. Really believed in the engineering world, so I went and did a civil engineering degree at University of Surrey, which was sort of one of the top three civil universities in, in the UK. Really, really challenging. You know, I was two years out of school by this point. My maths, physics knowledge had sort of dwindled away, yeah, as it uh, does when you don't use it. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I remember just failing the first maths test when I went to do the engineering degree and going, "What am I doing? You know, I've got four years ahead of me. This is a really hard degree." I've either got to knuckle down and get on with this thing, or maybe we're going to pass this one up too. So what are we going to do? Carried on, did my civils, four years there, did a year in industry, which was amazing. And then went to do a master's in sustainable energy futures as well at Imperial College. That was the point, I think, where it sort of really tipped for me in terms of career. That was the bit and the university and the institution that said, right, this is where people that go to our university go, and this is the types of things they're doing now, which path are you going to take? And that was the real motivating factor at that point.
1: So for people that aren't familiar with futures.
0: (laughs) It's a very broad subject. The name of the MSC was a little bit misleading, but it's futures as in the future. So that was everything from the electrical engineering side, the mechanical engineering side, a bit of civil engineering. It was the economics, the policy around that too. There was a whole load of entrepreneurs entrepreneurship piece around it because we need to develop new ways of tackling some of these wider issues and they really pushed you into that world as well so it's kind of business plus engineering.
1: Was this in the early 2000s like was this before sustainability became a very overarching topic one that was spoken about daily and one that was being taken incredibly seriously?
0: I think it was at the sort of tipping point it was early mid 2010s actually we did that Electric vehicles were still early. There'd been some great early work in sort of solar and wind. They'd tailed off a little bit with government subsidy over in the UK. But yeah, it was starting to become a real social issue. And there was a real push within the media and with other parts of society around how we tackle some of these problems. That's been accelerated a lot more today around COVID. But yeah, sort of mid-2010s, this was really starting to happen. In all parts of society, you know, we were looking at automotive and we were looking at cities and things like that. And there was real recognition of it. Probably wasn't enough action at that point, And now we're starting to see some of the action.
1: So what about then early career path after your university?
0: As part of my master's, I wrote a thesis on the impact of autonomous vehicles, so driverless cars, on the energy systems. So in a city like Sydney, when you've got fleets of robo-taxis driving around, picking people up, dropping people off. What does that mean? What does that mean on the energy systems? How do we make sure those fleets are going to be good for this world? And as part of that, I had to do some modeling and some simulation around different futures that could happen. And I got introduced to a previous professor that was on the course who used to run the transport systems part of the of Imperial College. Got introduced to him. He was now running. He'd spun out a company and was running the simulation tech company. Small team, very, very techy, very cool, very smart guys. I ended up doing a couple of months with them as part of my MSc program, came out of that going, oh, wow, I haven't actually got a job. (laughs) (laughs) And when, you know, what do you think? Can I hang on here for a little bit more? And so I joined them as a applications engineer, which was really helping the market understand how they work with that sort of simulation-based technology because you've got really techie people that really understand it and don't quite know how to explain it and then people that need it that don't quite understand it and so I kind of filled that gap quite quickly found that my skill set was more in the sales and marketing you know helping explain it with good messaging good marketing and so ended up uh, nearly left the company and had a few op- offers to go elsewhere, but ended up staying as head of commercial development and kind of building out the commercial arm of that building, of that um, of that company, sorry. So that was an amazing experience a couple of months out of tertiary education to then go and take a really awesome team. I think there were about eight people at the time through into that sort of commercialization journey. They've got good, in- good innovation funding. That was something the UK did really well is back early stage companies with funding, a lot of sort of co-funded projects. They'd done well on on that front. And then I was sort of in post to try and spread that technology and capability to the wider world.
1: With your skill set in that marketing and, and getting that message right and I guess simplified enough to make it appealing to the people that don't understand it and simplified for the people that overcomplicate it. How did you learn those skills? Were they just think Was it something that's innate or something that came through with your your tertiary education and being able to explain, say, things like your thesis in a, or the, the modelling in your thesis in a, in a much more sort of easy way to understand?
0: I think it is somewhat innate. I'm a pretty simple person really, but I've always tried to understand complex ideas. Even at university I was never the – top of the class, smartest engineer there, but I was really good at doing the presenting and explaining things and uh, helping people understand how we came to a certain conclusion. That was quite unique in that world because you've got a lot of very smart people that can't quite communicate it. And I found that I sort of flipped on the other side. So yeah, it wasn't A, but then a lot of, How we do that, I had to go and learn. So once I was in role at Immense, Immense Simulations, I had to go and quickly learn a lot of the soft skills were there, but then the actual how do you bring together a sort of marketing framework and how do you do the messaging really well, that I had to go and sort of learn and and build my knowledge.
1: Did you do that? in situ or was it something that was
0: yeah in situ look it's lots of books it meeting other people within industry we were very active as a company anyway across events so i tried to build my network and sort of learn from a lot of people that have been doing industry for a while Nothing really deliberate and nothing like, hey, will you be a a sort of mentor to me? But I just sort of immersed myself in it, bounced ideas off, you know, hey, I would produce something that we were going to use at immense, and then I'd go and speak to people and say, what do you think to this? You know, does this plan work? Is what I'm trying to do here good? Getting as much feedback as possible. The wonderful thing, I had a great founding team there that just backed me to do that. They were happy. They were figuring it out too. Luke, go and figure it out. Like, we don't know the right answer. So test things, try things, get as much feedback, build your network, learn fast and uh, see what happens.
1: So after Immense, were you still working with corporates or startups or did you after you moved on from there, what did you get straight into?
0: Yeah, so I'd done bits of more corporate stuff previous to Immense around university studies. So I worked for a bigger engineering consultant in the UK. Again, maybe 100, 150 people, so not massive. But it gave me a good exposure to sort of the bigger end of the corporate world. And I think that size was about right for me. Like I never really wanted to go into huge – business because I think you can just get lost a little bit and it takes time to climb the ladder and for some people that's great and when you go to institutions like Imperial and Surrey the goal for them generally is get you into big get you into big companies. A lot of the guys on the MSC course wanted to go to McKinsey or they wanted to go to Arab. and maybe at one point that was where I thought I wanted to go because that was what everyone else was doing but having been through the process with Immense and seen the, the startup journey you know we went and raised a series A with Immense and good investors built the teams about 50 people like one wonderful little growth journey that gave me enough confidence and maybe naivety to go actually maybe maybe I could do something maybe I could go and do it myself and then had moved to Australia two years ago had the itch to go and start something which we'll come on to actually came over with immense and said hey Australia's a great market for us let me go and have a little look for a year, build up a good network. And we never got any big projects off the ground. I ended up transitioning to just be head of marketing globally, but working from Oz, helping all around the world. At the point that I had an itch to go and start something else, I sort of knew that I could do it.
1: Out of curiosity, what was that defining moment to have that itch, but was there a trigger that kind of went, well, maybe it's just the time is about as right as it could be, or, you know, if I don't do this now, I'm never gonna do it.
0: Yeah, a little a little bit. And I was sort of uh, young enough and inexperienced enough to want to give it a go, and probably naive enough to think, hey, what's the downside risk here but also having seen enough that i think i've got at least enough of the skills to go and give this thing a a real good go and you've got to put some level of time limits and pressure on executing on that because it can't just drag on but honestly it was more it was coming back to the curiosity point it was the okay this there's a big problem here to solve i think i know how to solve it given some of the stuff we've worked on historically gosh i just can't sleep tonight thinking about this thing and that was weeks and months and then i'd try and constrain my ideas into into a small document and then i went and had some coffee chats and i was like and then people are going yeah that's great keep going (laughs) don't tell me to keep (laughs) going. tell me tell me why this won't work then yeah just kind of said right Let's work out a way for me to slowly tail back the stuff I'm doing with Immense and that helps me sort of move into running the new business. That's never an easy thing when you're trying to juggle multiple, as you would know, multiple projects. Your focus changes day to day, minute to minute and can be a real challenge. It was just trying to build the confidence, build the conviction to know that actually at the right point we could go and execute on it.
1: I was just thinking back to what you were saying about when you were starting, it seems like a key mix of naivety, which is, which I think is also quite powerful because it's if you overthink things and if you have too much knowledge, then you think up of ways that you might not be able to implement what you want to do. And a healthy mix of experience to say that you can sort of see it through. So that takes us, I'm assuming, to to our found. How did it come about? What's the origin story of?
0: Part of the the move to Australia, you know, we went and rented in an apartment building on the Gold Coast for the first year. It was a built to rent, which is getting more prevalent in in Australia at the moment. Eighty unit apartment building one owner, everyone renting. Interesting mix of people kind of living in those sorts of communities. You get young couples, early, mid-career. You get some retirees that are sort of downsizing. And sort of mobility and transportation is a really interesting challenge for people in that sort of world, especially in the Gold Coast over other places. It's a bit different in Sydney and, and Brisbane. And we ended up buying our second car for like two or three trips I needed a week. I didn't have a choice, really. We sort of did a little bit of car sharing with my in-laws and and, and with my, my partner, but it was just a bit painful. And so I sort of approached the property manager quite early and said, well, what if we put out a couple of shared electric cars, electric bikes, electric scooters, as part of your experience living here, actually we can solve a lot of problems for, for people living here, you know? And then I started chatting to people and some of them have one car and they sort of ride share to work. Uh, they both jump in the car to go to one person's work. Then the other person takes it for the day and then they kind of come back, pick them up later on. It's just all very complicated. Uh, and the property manager loved it. And I sort of started to just explore that a little bit more with developers, the cities, state government through some of my connections through immense, which was really, really valuable and just started to understand the drivers for doing that from the different sort of stakeholders engaged. I sort of obviously seen it from a user point of view, like, hey, this would be something I would use every day, every couple of days, but then why would a developer do it? Why would a property manager want to have it? Why would the cities back this? Why would the state government want to see this? And just started to kind of piece that together. So I spent about six months on that little journey. And then I had a few interesting visa challenges when I first landed and mid-pandemic had to leave to go back to the UK because it was the only place in the world that would let me in at that point to then return to Australia because for visa reasons you have to be offshore when it was granted to come in and wouldn't change the rules mid-COVID and it was all just an interesting pain but when I landed back here landed in sydney Uh, i was in hotel quarantine for two weeks on my own a lot of people hated quarantine and it makes a lot of sense and you probably would go stir crazy but because i had built up this weird little vision in my head around what we could go and produce i went and started the company and built the decks and built the website and allowed me to explain it a lot quicker to people to then get more feedback and start building it so that was sort of january last year that was the origin that was the the kickoff of the business and then we went from there
1: would you Categorize Outbound as private e-mobility, private sharing (laughs) in e-mobility, is that right? (laughs) Yeah, it is.
0: Look, um, dedicated shared e-mobility. If you live, work, stay in this building, you've got a set of vehicles you can use when you need. We do that in partnership with the property owner, manager, operator, developer, whoever it is that that has the main stake in that building because then they're really engaged on getting people using that service and it being a genuine amenity for that property. It's the private, dedicated, shared, exclusive piece within that building, which look at some point, obviously I hope that you'll be upset when you walk into a building and where's my outbound vehicles? That's where we wanna get to, that's part of the vision is everywhere you go, you'll already be onboarded. You just have to go and get the code or whatever from the the reception desk and you can go and use the the vehicles downstairs.
1: So before we unpack some of the the intricacies of outbound, I just wanted to take a step back and look at some of the overarching sustainable and, and climate change issues because see the electrification of transport is a a huge one. I just wanted to understand more about why e-mobility is such a relevant issue in tackling uh, climate change.
0: Transportation is a massive issue. I think a sixth of Australia's carbon emissions are from private vehicle use, which is huge really. We look outside now and there's cars buzzing around. It's the foundations of urban living. So we're so dependent on vehicles and mobility, but there's no reason that they have to be privately owned, right? One of the big things we need to do is break that link between vehicles and people and the sort of ownership level. So there's two there's two key strands to our sort of sustainability strategy. One is the transition to low emission vehicles. So 98% of the fleet outside is on diesel or petrol fuel. We need to transition that so the local air quality and, and local emissions are far, far reduced. But then the other side of it is we need to reduce the dependency on car ownership and reduce the number of vehicles within that fleet that we're using. Because how many cars are sitting, the stat is 96% of the time a vehicle sat there doing nothing. We can be far more efficient with the way that we operate these systems, the sharing aspect and the transition to uh, more sustainable modes.
1: But it's a much more close-knit form of sharing, isn't it? As in you're not sharing it with the wider public? but you're you've got a much more tight group of people that can that can use it so
0: car, car sharing's been around for a long time it's been around Australia for a long time 20 plus years it's probably been more impactful in other parts of the world you know Europe's done it really well the US has done it really well some big players like Zipcar and, and others over there and you get two primary different types you get peer-to-peer sharing car next door here churro elsewhere and then you get the owned fleets like the Go-Gets or the Zipcars or whatever where they own the fleet and, and push them out and look they, they work really well and they've solved a problem there's something interesting about australian citizens and car ownership and we don't particularly like sharing and also there's a convenience thing around if it's somewhere in the city yes i can go and find one and it might take me a 10 minute walk but actually it's a bit annoying and i'm probably not going to give up my private car to do that and so we wanted to have it on your doorstep so in partnership with the properties have access to these vehicles on your doorstep so we improve the convenience level of that service while keeping the reliability and the financial benefits of having that service.
1: So what about some of the big climate issues that you're trying to mitigate? Is it all about low emissions, but there's also, I'm assuming there'd be other sort of community aspects of it?
0: Yeah, there's a, I mean, we're, we're also doing, we're offsetting all the carbon emissions that we do. So when people use our vehicles, they're investing in reforestation projects or renewable energy projects around the world. And that's a really powerful tool for us to drive more action there's something that we're seeing quite strongly and we need to bring through in our messaging far more is that you know the more you use these the more action we're driving uh, supporting our earth going forward so yeah that's it that's a huge bit For us, the other key thing is that we do e-bikes and e-scooters as well. This comes back to some of the simulation modeling days. There's so many trip types that we do, whether it's one kilometer down the road to go and get the groceries, we might still take the car if that's the prevailing mode of transport that we have, when actually an e-bike or an e-scooter is probably going to do it better. It's far more efficient for the mobility system that we operate in or actually maybe you know, we might wanna to go to Manly for the day or, or whatever it is where actually taking a car is far better or maybe taking an Uber or maybe taking a bus or whatever. And so we're trying to help people use the right mode for the right trip type or at least think about it because yeah, when you've got a car that you're paying for the whole time, you've got insurance, you generally take that for every trip when
1: it's just not worth it. Taking the car from the litres of milk is uh, a- <laughs> And we all yeah. do it, Yeah, right? You yeah. know,
0: we all, we all do it because we're so tired and dependent on that mode of transportation. Yes, it's super convenient. I don't think we're going to help in the short term help people get rid of their their first car, but maybe we can reduce the need to own two.
1: Thinking about our household, and we're quite lucky because we've got we've got one car, we've got a scooter, so that's kind of like one and a third. Yep. But they're still petrol driven. You know, that's a big consideration. Sort of moving forward is we need to start thinking about. When these kinds of modes of mobility become electrified, and you can already, um, I'm already looking at it a bit more closely now, (laughs) nowadays. And yeah, we've got such a long way to go, but it's that consideration needs to sort of happen.
0: Yeah, look, you know, we talk about electrification of everything. Yes, e-bikes, yes, e-scooters, yes, electric cars. But it'll be trains, it'll be planes, it'll be boats. Bigger modes are definitely hard to do. I am a believer in hydrogen as well as a low emission fuel. You know, there's a bit of a intellect divide within the sort of academic community around hydrogen versus electric. No, there's a we need that mix of fuel types for different trip types, right? So hydrogen is very energy dense. So actually we can do far more long range travel, you know, large trucks trains there'll be a really nice fuel for that trip whereas I think local stuff around a city actually electric makes far more sense. yes yeah,
1: so just battery battery operated basically that's yeah.
0: right but coming back to the earlier point around the sharing if it would be a travesty if we go and replace every single petrol diesel car that's on the road today with an electric car because of the you know lots of literature around the cobalt and the the other metals that we need to dig up to do that so actually the environmental benefits of just switching the fleet get diminished so actually we need to have a good portion of that new fleet that emerges to be shared
1: so you actually have to do it in a, even that switch has to be done in a sustainable and, and measured manner. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Before yeah, you go yeah. hacking up the earth and trying to dig up what you need to actually produce the stuff that drives it.
0: You know, I've got friends that own 15, 20 year old Land Rovers back in the UK and they're pretty, they, they're sort of horrible gas guzzlers. But the argument is, do I run this thing into the ground over the next five or 10 years or do I go and buy a brand new electric car and use that for my trips? Environmentally, it's hard to do the entire entire analysis, the sort of life cycle analysis of each of those things, but it's a genuine point. If some of these things are existing, we should probably use them rather than digging up new metals and building new cars. So at a service level, we're far more sustainable. When you dig into the supply chain and where those vehicles came from, some of those environmental benefits diminish. A lot of the, the, the vehicle manufacturers that we're working with, you know, we want to prioritize working with the ones that are more transparent and thinking through the entire, entire supply chain. Polestar are really good. They're on a mission to get to net zero for their entire manufacturing process by 2030, which would be pretty impressive. Tesla traditionally have been very good. That is filtering through all the other automotive manufacturers as well.
1: So what about some of the big goals that you're personally trying to hit with these overarching sustainability issues? Like do you have things that you're aiming for with emissions reductions or reforestation? Are you focused on particular numbers or progressive increases over time? or The key thing
0: at this stage of the business is get it going, get a good footprint in market, get good partners and good people around us, get it going, understand the metrics that make the big difference, and then we can start to push them. I mean, the key metrics that are going to drive the business will be the number of properties that we end up deployed in, the number of vehicles at each of those properties. And we hope that, again, that increases over time because that means that people are getting more used to and dependent on the service rather than needing to own their own vehicles which is great and then the usage of those vehicles they might start being used three four five hours a day eventually we want to be 10 11 12 hours a day and we're getting more vehicles on those because that shows that people are willing to share and willing to travel with low emission vehicles
1: so in starting this company i mean there's an amazing mix of environmental sustainability but then you've also got technology you still need to run that business as a business so who have you gone to or do you have any mentors of guidance that had some guidance as to what to do, where to look, broaden your vision, because founders typically have a, they think into their company day in, day out. So it's a good question.
0: To be honest, I haven't probably been deliberate enough about this as I would like to be. When you're in the early stages, you have to become a really good street fighter and hack your way through it and go as fast as possible. Yeah, I mean, even through the immense Times, you know, the the leadership team there became really good mentors for me and I learned a lot, which was great. So, you know, I was sort of on the fringes of everything we were doing, the CEO was doing, the leadership were doing. So I was sort of seeing what they were doing well, seeing what wasn't quite working and sort of built my capacity in that way. And then when started outbound, I got a business partner up in Queensland who sits on, is a director of several other businesses, sits on various boards, runs his own law firm up there. And so as a sort of business partner to help me on the operational side, that's been super valuable because I've got a good understanding of the market and the tech and the capability and where this fits in and the sustainability side, but how the hell you turn that into a proper business that employs people and makes money and brings on investment and does all those other wonderful things that businesses need to do to survive and grow, having Clayton on board has been super, super valuable. And then around that, you know, we've sort of, We're piecing together an amazing team, not at the moment full-time operators within it, but that just provide advice, guidance in their relevant skill set. So actually it's it's a a mix. So they provide me with the guidance and support, but they also open doors or use their network and connections to help the thing go faster. And that's really valuable to me because I've only been in Australia two years as well. So my network is pretty small and growing. So I kind of have to lean into some of these guys. Got a, you know, we've got a great product advisor that's just come on board. We've got Marty, who you know, who's come on board on the sort of partnerships side and helping us have really engaging discussions with the real estate industry over here. And also him just coaching me and helping me understand how that world works is really, really valuable. Yeah, so Clayton on the business side. And then we've got sort of various other advisors that probably need to make more conscious effort to engage and learn and and use them but yeah they're they're sort of really really valuable to me
1: this is the end of the first part of the episode i hope you've enjoyed listening to luke's journey so far in part 2 we'll be talking about how luke took outbound from a series of ideas and a pitch deck to commercially piloting its first on-demand EV service. We also cover some of Outbound's use cases at various scales of property development. For example, at the city scale, at master plan community scales, right down to the scale of an individual property development project. So be sure to tune in to part two. See you soon.